0: 15 years ago, at age 30, I was hired for my dream job, Special Events Manager at Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, otherwise known as GLAD. It was mid-June, and just six weeks later was my first major event, GLAAD's Summer Party in Provincetown on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Those six weeks just flew by, and suddenly, we were setting up for the party on the grounds of the Pilgrim Monument. All the logistics were handled by myself, an intern, and a few volunteers. Every year, my packing list got longer and longer and the setup more complicated. But that first year, I remember my top priority was to make sure I had a wine opener at every bar station. Over the next decade, I was busy running nearly 25 events every year and grew to really appreciate being able to build off the previous year's design. Now, I mentioned this was an outdoor event. The rain plan was no rain. That was the plan. Miraculously, I ran 10 events without having to cancel a single one and attended five more as a donor with only the threat of rain. It seemed like nothing would stop this event from being held and raising important funds year after year despite the many challenges of running an outdoor event with over 500 guests. And then the pandemic hit. I'm no longer on Gladstaff and I'm not privy to how they decided to design their online event, but I know that this is an opportunity to pause and reflect on the purpose of this event because when we're busy just trying to get all the pieces of the puzzle in place, sometimes we run forward without a moment of reflection. Moving in-person events online requires not replication, but reimagination. I've been thinking about this more and more as I help clients design their online events. A one-day in-person event with two tracks became a two-day online event with ample networking opportunities so everyone got access to all content and to each other. An event that had attracted participants from Northern California decided to cap their online attendance, knowing they're likely to attract people from across the state and even the country. Presenters who completed the 5% Advantage program that I run are learning to rethink their presentation to leverage technology to meet the needs of their online audience. Your challenge this week. I recently completed the virtual convening certification program offered by conveners.org. I really appreciate their purpose-first framework. Before you dive into the details of planning your next event, pause and consider this question. What is the purpose of this convening? Conveners.org provides a very helpful tool for this. This is the phrase. My core community is blank. And when they leave this convening, they will feel blank, think blank, and do blank. They say this Mad Lib should include a verb, be specific, and be from the perspective of participant goals. Now, here's that phrase again. My core community is blank. And when they leave this convening, they will feel blank, think blank, and do blank. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest excels at teaching entrepreneurs how to turn interested prospects into excited clients who say, yes, I can't wait to work with you. She has 20 years of experience in sales, Relationship coaching and communication studies. So she understands what it really takes to inspire people to take in decisive action. As a result of her expertise, she's sold over $14 million in products in 10 years in corporate sales, working for world leading multi million and multi billion dollar biotech and medical equipment companies. She left her highly lucrative corporate sales job to start her own business, teaching high end sales and sales training to coaches, trainers, healers, and niche service providers. Her one-call blueprint sales consultation system enabled her to grow a multi-six-figure coaching business in less than two years. That same system has helped her clients, entrepreneurs, small business owners, and mission-driven corporations to package, position, and sell their services for premium pricing. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Deep Stratton.
1: Thanks for having me on, Robbie. Very excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us from your office in San Diego, California. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: Leadership is a huge topic. It's clarity of vision, being willing to share it. In fact, my husband and I were just talking about how, you know, (laughs) when you're a leader, you can't seek approval and praise because there's how, if you think about how praise is given, it's usually given from on high, right? So when you're a leader, you're, you're, you are the point of the spear, so to speak, or the, 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 of course, not a military analogy. is my favorite, but you know, you're, you're the leader. You're the person who's in the front. And so by definition, you are doing things that have not been done before you need to be able to stand on your own two feet and you need to make a difference. So for me, when I think about leadership, it's, it's about making a difference for people in a real way so that they can see something new as possible for their lives. And yeah.
0: Yeah, that's, that's my version.
1: That's my version of leadership.
0: Yeah, I know. It's inspiring. I think that, um, you know, this idea that it's a trial, a new trail that's being blazed, you know, and that uh, the, the praise piece that you brought up at the beginning there is really interesting too because you know i think in some ways leaders right now are having a lonely moment too because like we know when you're having difficulty you don't have anyone to like necessarily talk to and when you're doing a good job no one's really praising you um so do do you see like how, yeah how do you does that strike you the idea that leaders might be kind of stuck in this space
1: well i think that's just how that is i i remember being a much younger person knowing that i was going to lead big things and I knew that from a fairly early age and knew you know they talk about it you know it's lonely at the top but I'm not saying that necessarily the leader is at the top. In fact a really great leader is at the bottom. Um and we could talk about that in a minute because but um I think it is a when you really have clarity of vision and conviction about what it is that you'd like to accomplish in the world. Well first of all, let's just pray that you are doing some great things for for people. Um um, which is basically the context I work from, but it's also your people might not understand you. And my my own battle with, it, or my own trouble or struggle with being a leader is that, you know, I kind of waffle back and forth between wanting to make a difference and then being afraid that people won't like it or like me, right? Like my, my and my husband will say to me because he's a he's a um, head of operations in our company, and he says, "Do you want to make a difference or do you want to be liked?" And sometimes you, you, you know, and that's a hard question. He asked, he asked me that today, and I thought, you know, if I had to choose between being liked and making a difference for people, I have to choose making a difference, and that takes a lot of courage. And people don't necessarily understand that.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how this all started. Like thinking back to your earlier days of like um, leadership, or like you know, what kind of kid were you in the playground? I guess you know, were you organizing other kids? Were you watching from the side? Uh, Did you run for school office? Did people see leadership potential in you? Like, oh yeah, what kind of kid were you, Jennifer?
1: I was the shy, smart kid. Um, You know, I grew up in a town where, you know, I didn't look like anybody else in the city where in the town where I grew up. Uh, I was, you know, I had really, really great grades. I was teased a lot. Um, But I also... I, I think I was different because kids would come over and they would talk to me and they would confide in me. And they, and I remember standing in the lunch line, I must've been in fourth grade. And this kid was asking me about some, some word. I don't know what the, I can't even remember what the word was. And he was like, what does this word mean? And I told him and he's like, oh, you didn't laugh at me. And he was like my, he was one of those kids that teases, but now he's my best friend. Cause I didn't laugh at him. You know, that's the kind of kid I was because I just, you know, I just kind of stuck to my own thing. I did what I did. I, I had a few friends, but mostly I was pretty shy.
0: Yeah, but I don't, it's funny because I don't think of you as, sh- the word shy would not come up as I described. I could probably have filled three pages with what I would use to describe you and the word shy wouldn't come up. So I'm curious about your evolution. At what point did you realize that there was more like potential? I think when you're shy, it doesn't mean you're not observing everything. Like you're sometimes you're painfully aware of dynamics in the room, but you just don't take action on them. Like you notice things. At what point did you put yourself into the action a little more and like discover the courage to to be more? I guess more present.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I I was always taking action. I just didn't do it in a very vociferous way. You know, I would you know I would just you know quietly get a hundred on my math test and and just be proud of my little certificate. you know? <laughs> Really, um, yeah, shy for me meant that I kind of kept my opinions to myself. I you know you'll even now as an adult you'll find me not keeping my opinions to myself. That's not the same but you know if I go to a party, you know I'm in the kitchen with the host. You know I'm not out like, you know, leading the you know, leading a dance around the backyard or anything, you know, like the people do. And so for me it was um as I got older, one of the things I think was equally impactful for me is just wanting to help people so much. When I was about eight, my sister was fourteen. She went into the hospital. She had been sick all summer, and I remember like nobody could figure out what what was wrong with my sister. And she's she's fine now. She's you know she's an adult doing well. But um she, you know she came actually down with this chronic illness when she was fourteen, and I remember walking through the hospital at the age of eight with these, you know, these tall, tall ceilings, wide white corridors and just being really, really scared for my sister. And just knowing that I wanted to find a way to help her. And I was like, I am going to figure this out. And I, and I felt like this determination at eight years old and that determination to help people and to make a difference really outweighed the fact that I was afraid to talk to people. And so by the time I got into my twenties, I had this opportunity to go, I was, I was in a technical field. I worked, um, I worked actually in a scientific laboratory when I got out of college, I was in San Francisco and I had a job, I had a new job opportunity to work in sales for this technical company, a biotech company. And, you know, for me being an introverted person, the thought of talking to a stranger, and trying to get them to buy something—that was just was really my context for sales at the time. Was it was literally the scariest thing I could think of to do. So I took the job. I moved to a city where I didn't know anyone, where I'd never been before, to do a job that scared me—to to talk to total strangers and try to convince them to buy stuff. And I I thrived, and I, I have continued since that time to to kind of push past those fear barriers so that I could make a difference for people.
0: So interesting. Cause I I was recently and I'm trying to think of what book it was. I was reading a book on sales and I'm an outgoing extrovert. So I'm I'm like the polar opposite on the on the Myers-Briggs scale from a shy introvert. And um I have had to learn about shift my understanding of sales over the years as well. Um, but one of the things I learned in this book was that the people who do the best for sales are not the outgoing like life of the party people. Cause it's it's like does it, the genuineness isn't felt and like they're they're a little too much a little it's like you know slow down slow down you like you're still talking my brain hasn't caught up and the people who are who are a little quieter and a little more thoughtful a little more methodical a little you know not extremely you know passively shy like you know not like glued to the wall shy but like just willing to create some space and it sounds like you were able to sort of move into that space but i'm sure when you were thinking about cells the outgoing, like sales guy, sales dude, was like. I mean, it's still prevalent in our culture. The way we think when we hear the word sales, it doesn't make sense because it's like we don't have used card salesmen in that way anymore. But that's what we think of. You couldn't have well, been we further do. from that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, and I,
1: I think it's funny when you when I saw the name of your show because I'm like, oh, I'm not good at schmoozing at all, which is, I'm sure, like, you know, something that you address. Because I mean, when I was in, when I was in biotech, I worked in a very, very competitive industry, 90, 95% of the salespeople were men. I was a young woman and, uh, you know, me and Jessica who were the only two women out of a sales force of like 45 men. Uh, we were two of the best salespeople and not cause we were great looking <laughs> really. That was like, and look, if you're, if you have women listening, like ladies, like, Okay. I hear you. Like there's this whole, like, what do you do with my sex appeal thing? And it, it's, cha- it, it is challenging. I was, I was always with like the high collars. Like I was the one with the high collars, not the low shirts. But anyway, um, so the thing is, is that I, um, I could see that there were those outgoing life of the party. Take, take your customer to the ball game, buy them a beer kind of person. And one, I, I don't really know anything about Baseball um, or beer. Uh, so that wasn't my style. My style was really about listening. It was really about listening deeply. And one of the things that I learned, and it was really, I, I mean, I'm so grateful to the shy person that I was, is I I was so uncomfortable talking that I just resorted to asking questions. It was much easier for me to ask questions and let the other person talk. Well, guess what I learned. That if you learn how to ask really great questions, people like your ideal prospects will literally sell themselves, literally just sell themselves. If you know how to ask great questions. And I really discovered that by default, because certainly all the training that I went to in sales didn't teach how to ask that level of deep question. But as it turns out, I'm I'm a very deep listener. And what I discovered is that you can really, uh, relationship is not about how long you've known somebody or how you schmooze them, right? Or the ball game. Um, it's really, for me, uh, what I discovered is that it's, about a, it's a function of depth. Relationship is not a function of time. It's a function of depth.
0: Yeah, and it, what's incredible is how quickly you can get to that depth. Like you said, it's not time. It's about, it's about being present with people. And um, this always reminds me of Bill Clinton because he's sort of known for the ability to like in a moment, you know, make people feel like they're the only people in the room and as we're doing more and more Zoom calls, and I've been doing Zoom for interviews for years now, um, you can have that experience because there's no distractions. Whereas, like, I feel like when I'm doing this kind of trying to have a conversation with just one person at an event, you're always, well, yeah, I'm always like aware of like who's trying to join our conversation. Do I shift to let them in or not? Like, are they are the is the person I'm talking to actually engaged and paying attention, or does it seem like they're ready to go? Are they like looking over my shoulder? Or am I looking over their shoulder? Like, and, um. but being present with someone like and getting deeper is, is about like kind of quieting a lot of that and like being stiller. And as someone who that's what's funny when you talk about like, I'm an outgoing expert, but my MO early on in college was to, was to find one person I didn't know and head into the corner and have like a three hour conversation with them. Like that was who I was like by default. I was like, I want to know everything about you. So I was Always doing more of that, even though I could totally have just been like, I'm. I'm never the person who like leads the Congo line. I'm. I'm not that kind of. <laughs> I guess it's variations of outgoing extroverts. So I'm not that kind. Um, but I love that you sort of found your inner your inner like strength around this, and people obviously noticed it in you because you're doing so well. And then you, but then you ended up in the world of corporate, right? So like you kind of wound your way through different sales roles. At what point did you say I'm staying with sales? Like. Did you? Because you kind of fell into it.
1: I still fell into it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny when you look at your. You know, I think for each of us, when you when we look at our own life and what we've done, a lot of times the pieces don't make sense. You know, I I when I was eight, I decided to be a doctor, actually. And when I, I mean, here's the leader part, right? Is I got out of college. I went to a very, very, um, very, very good school on the East Coast. Got out of school, decided that I was going to be a doctor. And I didn't get into medical school anywhere. And what I was doing in my medical school interviews is I was telling the interviewers how I was going to change medicine and make it more holistic. And they didn't like that. (laughs) So, um, especially not back then, you know, number, you know, a couple of decades ago. And so I didn't get in. And um, so I ended up doing this scientific equipment sales job because it was the scariest thing I could think of to do. It was the next thing for me to do. I didn't get into medical school. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to change things. I wanted to make a difference. So I did that job for a little while and I ended up quitting and going to acupuncture school. And at the time, nobody really knew what acupuncture was. There were several country, uh, schools around the country, but it wasn't well known. It wasn't covered by insurance, but I had had such good experience with acupuncture. I decided that I was going to study acupuncture and be a Chinese medicine doctor, got my degree, my master's, and I sat for the state board. And then I decided, you know what, I. Um, I started to understand more about finance and money and business. And I realized that I wanted to create like a bigger, a bigger opportunity for myself. But at the time I'd gotten pregnant, I had my first son. And so I went into, I went back into sales because it was easy. And so uh, easy for me to get that job. I should I was say it wasn't, saying, easy really to do. it wasn't easy to do, but it was easy for me to get that job. It was a really great source of income. You know, I was, you know, I was good at selling. I could make a lot of commission and I liked not having a lid. I like knowing that when I put my effort towards something that I will be compensated. And I think, you know, good salespeople really appreciate that. And I remember working for a company that was actually criticized for, um, letting go of people or employees who don't perform, who don't meet the standard of the company as measured by the certain metrics. And I was thrilled. Because I read all about them. I had this job interview and I was reading like all of this bad press about how they let people go who don't perform. And I'm like, good. If if I don't perform in my sales job, you should fire me because I don't deserve to be here. And I like that. I'm I'm totally fine with lumping it if I suck. So oops, excuse me. So um I didn't choose sales, but I found this freedom that I didn't find in other kinds of work. To, in a, in essence, I mean, I worked for a company, but I never saw my boss. I mean, he basically, after they trained me, I, you know, I would call him once a month to let him know that I still, you know, needed him. But really the truth is like, I didn't, I mean, he did do things for me. He was, he was a great boss, but it wasn't like I needed somebody to tell me what to do. I knew what the job was. I liked doing the job. I liked helping the people. I liked that I was compensated. I was really a free agent in a sense. And I enjoyed that for a number of years until I realized that even that had a limit and I think if that was what would be a word to really describe me is that I like to have no limits like I am limitless I believe we are all limitless we all are full of possibility and the only people who put lids on the only person who can put a lid on your potential is yourself yeah so I eventually quit
0: and did you stick in the corporate or is that when you decided to make the shift to entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, I had a variety of different corporate jobs, um, sales training and and doing sales directly with customers. And I decided to leave and I actually started a company coaching relationships with my husband because that was an area that I wasn't so good at. You know, in spite of my introverted self, I, I didn't, you know, I had learned so much about relationships and um, eventually started a relationship coaching company. And that was a total wake up call for me because I left this very um, well worn path in corporate sales to start my own business in uh, really an industry I didn't know anything about. I didn't know how to find customers. I didn't know how to build a business. I, I thought everybody needed help with their relationships, but that, you know, couldn't find anybody that wanted to buy. Uh, so it was an interesting road. And for a long time, I really was avoiding sales. I'm like, I've been doing sales for so long. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. But, you know, I think things come full circle and I finally realized, you know, it's like, it's in my blood, like it, because sales, and I want to talk about this for sure, Robbie, is that sales is not what people think it is. And once you get past that sales is not what people think it is and get to what it really is, then I was able to start selling again. And we did very, very well in that company. We did so well that my entrepreneur friends finally started saying, what are you doing? Can you teach me how to sell? And I'm like, oh, I don't do that anymore. I don't teach people how to sell. I just do it for myself. But I had so much demand that I actually started my current company, uh, High Ticket Sales Success, which now we now we train entrepreneurs.
0: And how long ago did uh, High Ticket Sales Success?
1: Uh, six years. We've been around six for six years. years.
0: years. Wow. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, A couple of things I want to notice about this. One is that you seem to lean into the things that are big and scary and unknown and uncomfortable. And you're like, that's why I want to do it. So there's this, this sort of a theme going on here. yeah. And maybe it's because you have some practice doing it, you know, because you did start out that shy, you know, introverted kid who like had to keep working to put yourself out in, into the world you seen and you have more resilience and sort of more practice in doing it. So, you have to keep upping the stakes, <laughs> I feel like, to, to get that, you know, to push yourself a little further. The other is what's so interesting about the fact that you and your husband decide to focus on relationships is that relationships are so key to sales. Um, like if we're really getting into like what sales is, and I know that's, I know that's where you want to go and I would do too. Um, but I just want to bring in another name that I know, I know I've mentioned her to you in passing, but her name is Stephanie Chung and I interviewed her in my podcast series. And I think I told you about her and I'm, we'll put the link in the show notes. I interviewed Stephanie probably like three plus years ago. I mean, early on. And I, I mean, we spent the entire time sort of laughing because she's a high ticket sales closer who learned her craft selling private jets. She's a woman of color and she's not a pilot. (laughs) So she's not like a white guy and not a pilot and managed to like learn this craft. And so the thing we were laughing about is how you don't, sell private jets by like taking your business card and just kind of spraying and praying as you walk through the room. You don't like sell private jets by putting people on your email list when they didn't ask you to and then spamming them a bunch of times. You know, there's just like all these things that we think that sales should be are not. And if so now I've been telling my clients, how would you approach selling your product or service if it was a private jet? (laughs) Like what would you do differently? And they're like, well, I'd have to get to know people. And I'm like, oh, you'd have to build some trust. And they're like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, like no one's going to just buy a random like thing for me like that. They don't. Well, do you have to know if they need it? Yeah, I'd have to know if they need it. Like, well, do you have to be like aligned with what they need? Yeah, yeah. And you know, so it's like, how do you help them realize that? Like, oh, yeah, I could talk to them. So it's like, it's it's really helped me center that whole conversation. And then I went to this training that you did when I was with Miracy uh, a few months ago where you really helped us think through a sales process because um, we were doing the back of, I guess we'll call it back of the room on Zoom, which is an interesting concept all on its own. But we were doing back of room sales um, for a coaching program and you were like teaching us how to think through that sales process. So yeah, I mean, how do you, like I've just laid out a lot, but like how do you think about relationships and sales and like what you think of as sales? Like what is sales in your understanding of that word?
1: hmm There's really two kinds of sales. There's the old paradigm and the new paradigm. And we are ushering in the new paradigm, which is that sales really is service. You know, sales, you know, what gives sales a bad name is the people who, or maybe it's the idea of being forced to buy something you don't want to by someone who doesn't care if you need it or not. And great sales has nothing to do with force or any of that or manipulation or coercion. Um, The things that people avoid, you know, to me, great sales is really understanding that it is the highest level of service. Once people say yes, and then they back up that yes with their wallet, they're committing in a way that prior to that, yes, there's no commitment, right? People will say, oh, I want to do that, or I'd like to do that. But it's a completely different thing when they pay for it. There's sort of this um, acknowledgement in our society that the commitment is aligned with the with the with the actual action of paying for something. Now it's not always true. It thought it doesn't mean that if you haven't paid, you're not committed, or that everybody who pays is committed. That's but most of the time it tends to be that you know they make the payment, the commitment follows, and that's when people's lives actually change. Like if you think about anything big that you've ever wanted to accomplish, you have to decide you're going to do it first. You don't, you know, cause as long as you haven't decided, if you think about what something that's big, like maybe moving or getting a new job or getting married or having a baby, right? There's a moment of, there's a moment at time at which you decide, yes, I'm going to do this. And what your life looks like once you make the decision is completely different from the moment right before you made the decision. So for me, sales is service because Here you are speaking with somebody. And and this is why I love high ticket sales, because it really, it's a big commitment, right? The high ticket, the high dollars is usually a big commitment. And there's almost this sacred space, if you will, where somebody is, they want something, your prospect, right? Or the person who wants to buy something, or they they want something, they have something that they need solved. And there's this moment where they, if you're, if you're talking to a, a highly, Um, somebody who's good at having conversations with you, which would be an expert sales representative if you're lucky enough to be in that position. And you're sitting there and you're like, wait, there's something that could change in my life. If I actually commit, there's something that would be different if I actually decide. And then they decide. And when they take that action, now everything is different because they've decided and now, okay, now I've decided how are we going to make this happen? You have a totally different person. And when you're in the position as a salesperson or a representative of your own business, selling what you have, and you're in a position to help somebody in that way, I think that's, that is an honor. Like it is truly an honor to be able to hold the space for someone to step into a bigger possibility for themselves. So that's how I really see what sales is.
0: Ah, I love it. I love it. And thank you for explaining all that in that way. And I'm sure there are listeners who, you know, are nervous about sales. I mean, that's a, that's a, a common pushback I get from entrepreneurs. Um, I think I mentioned before we started recording, I'm working with Danny Eni on the other part of his business where I'm coaching people who are launching their online courses and we asked them to fill out like what their fear is and, and like selling was you know coming up a ton. Um, and so in my response, I was like, build a product that is so incredibly valuable that you know it's going to just transform people's lives and selling will not be hard anymore because for you not to sell it then is to then not is it's a disservice like you're denying people access to a resource that you know would help them you've got to kick yourself out of the way and let that let that product or service like you know do the talking and my background is fundraising and there is this sort of saying in fundraising you've got to kick yourself out of the way and let the cause talk you know, if you're afraid to ask for money, it's not about you. And in, in entrepreneurship, it's still, it's not about me. It's about the possibility when I present to you with, a, with a, a, an offer and you're like, yeah, that is actually what I need. And you're like, okay, great. Let's, let's do that then. So it's hard sometimes for me to go back to the mindset that people have around fear about doing these things because I have come so far in this conversation myself and I, and I think it's from doing it right. Like, I think, you know, it's hard at first, but have you found that you've seen like a trajectory as you work with people that their comfort, like quickly gets like, you know, shifts, they become more and more competent and and comfortable with the idea and they don't stay in that stuck place for very long. If they're actually, if they're just thinking about it, they get stay stuck, but if they do it, do you feel like that's the thing that shifts them a little bit? They learn.
1: If they take our program.
0: <laughs> I love that. Yes. <laughs>
1: Because well, yes. Here's the thing is like the reason they're afraid, like if you think about it really in selling your own product or service or program, you know, if you're, even if you're a, like a di- distributor for a company uh, or you've created something of your own, like an expert or you're a coach, or you've invented something to sell that thing, it feels like it's part of you. And so the fear is, there's a, several places the fear comes from. One is that when somebody says no, that you take it personally. And it's actually a rejection of you, like as a person, like we can't separate we have a hard time separating our ourselves from the thing we've created, right? Because it, it feels like our baby. <laughs> so you don't know want you don't know, you want to find out that your baby is ugly. So, so there's a sphere, but also there's also there's um a lot of people have beliefs around money, about being able to receive money. And so I think when we go to sell something, all of our limiting beliefs around receiving money and that there is abundance in the world, um, thinking that you know, if I take this money from them, then, you know, I'm serving myself and I'm not serving them. I've now taken something from someone, right. It's all this contextual, um, misthinking that has been embedded, I think, in a lot of people's minds through our culture and through their upbringing, bad experiences and so on. And so to, to pull those weeds of negativity and disbelief, limitations, out of our minds and really get centered on, you know, when I'm offering this high quality item and receiving money for it, that's actually a win for them and for me. So, yeah, I I think that if people get some good training and are able to shift their mindset around receiving money and their skills Right. sales is a learnable skill set and most people don't realize that it's actually a deep body of work. the same way like medicine is a deep body of work and you study it and you memorize terms and when you see this sign it means this thing about the human body. Like, same thing in sales it's actually a learnable skill set. if you can align both the mindset around it and the skill set, it becomes easy. In fact, I had a client she was a, she's a graphic designer. And when I met her, she'd been in business for about 30 years and she hated selling. She, she was running like probably a quarter million dollar business, hated selling. She grew up with some bad role models around sales that, you know, and she, you can imagine how her business was doing, right? Like hating sales. It's sort of a miracle that she was in business at all. Uh, And within about two months of going through one of our programs, she's like, Jennifer, I can't believe it. I actually Love sales. I, I can't believe I'm saying this. i I've fallen in love with it. In fact, she started doing you know, like consulting gigs for other businesses, doing sales for them because she enjoyed it so much because her whole paradigm around what she thought sales meant had gotten turned on its head. And part of it, yeah, like you said, Robbie, part of it is this that first action where you realize, wait, it's not what I thought it was,
0: yeah. it's such a profound mindset shift. And I think the word paradigm shift really does sort of fit this. Um, I wanted to shift us a little bit towards talking about relationships a little more broadly than just sales, because obviously, as you're you know, figuring out your offer and then you're you know, lining people up, and it's, it's about like nurturing and staying connected with your larger network. So I imagine also that you have met just, I know, hundreds, if not thousands of people over the last 10, 20 years that you know, all the people you used to work with and all your former clients and colleagues. So there's that inner circle of people that you'll, you know, you'll know you'll see, or you'll, you'll make a, a reason to see them. And then there's sort of that second and third layer out, the people in your network who you maybe see like once a year at a conference, or you worked with five years ago, but you don't really have a reason to run into them right now. How do you nurture and sustain connections with that larger circle in your network? Like what are your habits or philosophies or practices for, for staying in touch?
1: I mean, I think it depends on if I know them personally or not. Um, but here's what I would say about, because I think in some sense, we're a little bit t- talking about marketing a little bit, um, maybe. So what I would say is, I mean, being being an introverted people, I would say I have, I could probably count on one hand, the number of people I would call close friends. Right? And these are people that I could call after 10 years and we could pick up like it was yesterday. Um, but when I look at the larger network, what I would say is, you know, when you think of them, send them a note, like, Hey, just thinking about you, how you doing? I mean, I, I don't have anything more sophisticated on that. I am definitely not a networking expert. It's not my zone of genius. I would much rather like you stand in the corner and talk to one person for three hours. Uh, but for me, when I think about sort of nurturing like a community, a list, a, a list of subscribers or a Facebook following or some kind of community. What I think about is, how do I say this? I feel like I know them very, very well, even if I haven't met them. And so sure, I'm making assumptions, right? But when you, if you, if you start to get to know people well, and there's a certain kind of person who's a fit for your product or your service, or there's a certain kind of person who's a great partner or... Uh, a contributor to your business or, or somebody who sends you referrals, then you can start to, if you're really paying attention, you can get in their head and start to think about what are the concerns or things that they think about that could be of interest to them. And so, you know, you can get to know them and find out if those things are true. You can always, you know, I used to try to keep a list of like the favorite candy for my customers. Like I had this one guy who loved peanut brittle. So I had like in his, in his phone entry on, you know, his contact entry on my phone, it would be like. Dr. Smith loves peanut brittle, you know, um, wife, two kids. And so I would, you know, if I was at a fancy store and found peanut brittle, get him some peanut brittle, you know, it, but I, I didn't have a process for it. I wasn't very organized about it, but I would remember things. And I think for me, I I'm paying a lot of attention when people talk. And so I remember facts about their lives and things that they care about. People say to me often, Jennifer, I can't believe you remember that about me. Well, there are certain things that it just hooks into my mind. And that, I think accounts for a lot, you know, it's like, I, I remember you, I know I'm paying attention. And so I'm very present with you and people that I haven't met with like that second and third layer that you're talking about. I probably don't know those things about them, but there are certain things that they probably have in common with me that I think they might find interesting. So if I was nurturing an email list, I might say, Hey, there's this thing that I came across. I thought you might be interested in, and I might send it to a thousand people. Be like, hey! Here's something I thought you might be useful, and you would be amazed at the number of responses that I get. Thank you so much for sending me this. You hit it right on the head. You know, how did you know I was looking for something like this? You know, not everybody replies for yeah. sure, but you, you you have to pay attention. I,
0: I love this idea of paying attention and um, the little the, the little noticings. You know, um, I had a, a client once after you know we'd worked together for a while. She was traveling. And she was in a bookstore in Spain and saw this like beautiful book and reminded her of somebody in her network. And she put it back down and was leaving the store and had a what would Robbie do moment and turned around and bought it and inscribed it and then found the post office in Madrid and then mailed it from Madrid with that little note and then forgot about it and got this like incredible thank you in a response and rekindle this connection after like a year and a half of not talking. And, and I said, well, what would you have done prior to this? She said, I would have just left the bookstore and forgotten all about that at all and not even followed up. So not that you always have to do a, a big gesture like that, but if you think of them, <laughs> do the follow up, like reach out. <laughs> like I think this, I, I think we talk ourselves out of doing it. Like it's going to be too much work. Um, but you know, whether it's buying the peanut brittle or just like I thought of a friend, let me just like send him a note, whatever it is. So, um, it sounds like you do have some systems, even though, you know, it's not like you're following a, a rigid plan. There is still sort of a, um, not a, not just a spontaneity, but a purposefulness. Like you're looking for the opening and then when you see it, you take the action. Is that, am I summing that up a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, uh, Yeah, I think so. I'm not necessarily trying to get back in touch with people, but sometimes they just come into my head. And I think I've gotten more and more attuned to those moments of inspiration where I'm like, you know what? This person keeps coming into my head. I wonder why. And I'll call them and they'll say, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about you for two days. Like people would call that coincidence, but I don't really think it is coincidence. And so if you just take action in the moment that you're inspired, amazing things happen. I mean, some of the biggest connections that I've had some of the biggest opportunities that we've had in our business and in my personal life have literally be- been because I had a thought, took the action, and 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 just enjoyed it.
0: Well, you know, the opposite is also true. If you take no action, those opportunities aren't going to happen at all, 100% of the time, right? Like the whole Wayne Gretzky, like take the shots or no take the shots kind of an analogy there. Um, but, you know, being open. I mean, it sounds like... Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's an uncomfortableness that people have with reaching out. And this goes back to sort of you leaning into things that are a little uncomfortable, but you do it over time and it stops being as uncomfortable. Like I'm sure like sales, you know, now it's the paradigm shift and you think of it as, as, you know, service. Um, And I think reaching out used to feel, and probably this is how other people are listening are feeling. It's like you're bothering people. But if you stop having that paradigm and you think instead, I am just reconnecting, reaching out, offering, like saying hey, thought of you. And if you do that all the time whenever you think of someone as opposed to when you need something, like that's the thing, right? Like you can't wait. People it's like it's like sales, selling things people don't need and networking is bothering people to sell thing them things they don't need, but if you can shift those paradigms, <laughs> it's like it's it could be really rewarding.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you think of it as an an actual relationship, it's a whole other ballgame. Shocking. Oh
0: my gosh, (laughs) Jennifer. I think you've just struck the nail right there. It's
1: like an actual relationship.
0: What Um, do you know? Who knew? So one of my favorite questions as we wrap up is, um, we're reconnecting a year from now, and I I hope that we aren't waiting a whole year to do this. And we're reflecting on all of your successes over the past year. What are we going to be celebrating? What are you looking forward to in the year ahead?
1: What I'm looking forward to in the year ahead is having a completely brown, groundbreaking year for our company. And, you know, this is when this year started, I said that this was, I, I just knew that it was our year, and that our year has not gone at all according to plan, at all according to plan. And yet it will still be a groundbreaking year. And the reason it will be a groundbreaking year is because we are, innovating we're 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 finding ourselves in the position to actually really make a big impact for people on this planet and we are right like we are right at the dials and the levers of how to do that and i i feel so grateful to be finally in this position where i can take advantage of opportunity have the have the means to help people and to to just positively impact people's lives. This will be a banner year for us.
0: That's amazing. I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you, Um, get into the specifics of what that looks like. So Jennifer, how can people find you and follow your work?
1: Well, I have a great resource for your listeners. Um, I actually created an ebook on sales and it's really about relationships. But if if you are somebody that wants to um, raise your fees, or sell more expensive items, or just know how to have great conversations with people that enroll them in an idea, Um, you can grab my ebook. It's highticketsellingbook.com, highticketsellingbook.com and grab yourself a free copy.
0: Awesome. And um, I'm also going to have in the show notes... Uh, links to you on LinkedIn and Facebook and to your website, HighTicketSellsSuccess.com. But folks, I definitely think you should take advantage of the HighTicketSellingBook.com. Um, you know, this is conversation has got you thinking, hmm, maybe there's more to sales than I thought. And I think what you're hearing is there's a lot more to sales than you've thought. Um, you should go dive into all the new, wonderful nuances. You could not have a better guide than Jennifer. So Jennifer, again, thank you so much. You'll find all those links, the show notes at OnTheSchmooze.com. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jennifer. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 204. That's also where you'll find all the links, resources from today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. You've been recognized as an industry expert in the field of digital event design. That was a message I received that led to a really fun video project. And it was great to be recognized and to be able to share my message to a wider audience. Watch this five-minute video and share it with your colleagues because they will thank you. It's called High Five Digital Event Design and you can find it at robbiesamuelscom forward slash high five. If you enjoyed this episode with Jennifer, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze
1: podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the
0: Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.